Podcastle episode 182 for November 8th, 2011. Rising Lion, The Lion Bows by Zen Cho. Rated PG. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Ann Leckie. Sometimes I'll run across a book or a movie or a TV show that's set in the Europe of the past or some secondary world that's more or less based on the European past that's populated entirely by white people. All the actors are white, all the characters in the book are more or less fair-skinned, and when someone points out the extreme monochromaticism, there's always someone else ready to point out that in the past, the Roman Empire, the Middle Ages, the Elizabethan era, even later, there just wouldn't have been anyone but white people, so it's just sadly but truly accurate. Well, thing is, it's not. We forget that not all Romans were Italians, especially later in the empire when ex-slaves who could have come from nearly anywhere abounded, and citizenship was extended to more and more people, and the army made extensive use of auxiliaries, units filled with provincial non-citizens. For some fairly obvious security reasons, auxiliaries were generally stationed pretty far from home. So in fact, the population of the Roman Empire was pretty diverse and almost certainly not entirely white. The Middle Ages, too, had its share of far-flung trade and wide-ranging travelers. Many of the routes put in place during the Roman Empire were still in use. That thing you hear in elementary school about no one in medieval Europe traveling more than a few miles from their native village, it's, well, very much an oversimplification. I mean, seriously, if nothing else, the freaking Crusades. And then we come to the slave trade. Here our devil's advocate can regretfully point out that maybe there were black people in, say, Britain after 1555. There may have been some slaves, but only that. That's not actually true either. Actually, the legality of slavery in Britain was a murky issue until 1833, when it was unequivocally outlawed. Lawsuits involving British slave owners trying to recover runaway slaves on British soil were decided case by case until then. So, in fact, in Britain, you had some slaves and servants, yes, but also some successful business owners, mostly in coastal towns, to be sure, but not entirely. Interestingly, one of those legal cases I just mentioned was decided by Lord Chief Justice William Murray Lord Mansfield in 1772. Interestingly, because Murray's nephew was a naval captain with a habit of producing illegitimate children, and the mother of one of these was a black slave. He sent the child, a daughter named Dido Elizabeth Bell, to his uncle, who raised her along with another niece of his whose mother had died. Miss Bell's social status was pretty clearly below her cousin's. She was penniless and illegitimate after all. But she had an allowance and an education, and later married an Englishman and had children. When Murray died, he left her a decent amount of money and made extra certain to say in his will that she was not, in fact, a slave. Not all African kids sent to England fared as well, it's true. No few were given as novel and exotic presents and died young and unhappy. But some, like Dido Bell or Sarah Forbes Bonetta, did pretty well. So it's not at all true that the only black people in Britain at the time were slaves or servants. Today's story is Rising Lion, the Lion Bows by Zen Cho. It first appeared in Strange Horizons. Ms. Cho was a member of the Cambridge University Lion Dance Troupe from 2006 to 2008. She was born in Malaysia and is currently based in London. You can learn more at her website, kian.dreamwith.org. Rising Lion, the Lion Bows is read by Tracy Yun, who is making his very auspicious Podcastle debut. Qi Shi Xing Li, Rising Lion, the Lion Bows, by Zen Cho. 
The hotel was not like any hotel Tiazi had seen before. There was no drive swooping around a fountain featuring little peeing babies, no glass doors opening into a golden lobby lit by chandeliers, no men in white gloves to open the doors for you. Perhaps English hotels were different. This one was a blocky old building made of weathered grey stone and covered with ivy. It looked like it should come equipped with knights and pointy-hatted ladies. The manager who came out to greet them looked incongruously modern in comparison. He wore a suit and a bright red tie, but no gloves. His name was Nick. Thanks for coming, he said to Tiong Han. Tiong Han was technically the president of the troupe. The guests are really excited about the performance. Really excited. So am I. It'll add a touch of culture to the night. Whoop! Need help with that? He was already moving forward to help Simon unload the lion head from the taxi, but Coco stepped in front of him before he could touch it. Coco had been with the troupe for six years. She had never been their official president because she preferred not to deal with technicalities. It gave her more time to actually lead the troupe. Are Mr. and Mrs. Yu around? She said. It was Mr. Yu who had emailed them to ask if they would perform at a Christmas party that was being held at his hotel. It was a new hotel, and this was the first big event they were hosting, so he was willing to pay them a generous fee. They had agreed that the troupe would perform before and after dinner. There was also going to be fireworks and a disco. Sensibly, Mr. Yu and Mrs. Yu had stayed indoors. But they were very hospitable when the cold, disheveled group poured into the lobby. We've got Chinese food, Chinese decorations, lanterns, fireworks," said Nick. "It's all been done up to theme. The company does a lot of business out in China, so they were very keen when we suggested a China night. When we heard about you, we thought, 'Well, that's ideal. We're so pleased you can make it all the way out here.' Very pleased." Said Mr. Yu in English, in Cantonese he said, "The ghost is in the upstairs cupboard." Thank you. We're looking forward to it," said Coco to Nick. To Mr. Yu, what kind of ghost is it? Mr. Yu hesitated. Mrs. Yu had been overseeing Simon and Tiong Han as they carried the equipment in, but now she turned and said, "Nick, there is a drum. Will there be space in the dining room?" There's a drum. How big is? Oh, Nick said, and the drum emerged from the front door. We definitely haven't left enough space for that. I didn't know there'd be a drum. We thought they will use recordings," said Mrs. Yu. This was such a blatant fib that Tiazi was surprised when Nick only said, "We'll have to clear some space then. Let's see if we can jam it in the passage from the kitchen. You'll have to tell us whether they'll work." Tiong Han glanced at Coco, who nodded. He left with Nick, and the others followed, their arms full of cymbals, gongs, and cabbages. Tiati stayed with Coco, even after four months with the troupe. She was still too new to be much help with the setting up, and she wanted to know about the ghost. Coco had told Tiati about the Lion Dance troupe's occasional secret assignments after she'd been coming to their meetings for a couple of months. It was earlier than Coco would usually have told a new member, but Tiati thought Coco felt a bond with her. As the only other girl in the troupe and the only other person capable of going ten minutes without talking about video games, besides, it had become obvious, even in that short period of time, that Tiazi ate, slept, and dreamt 
lion dance. She was a quiet girl with an unfashionable accent, and British student culture had come as a shock to her system. She was ferociously homesick. She could not drink, and she only did well in classes when she was not required to speak. The troop did not seem to notice her quietness. They gave her something concrete to work at, and never said anything that she did not understand. She found refuge in their unsassy acceptance and reassuring Chineseness. So she trekked out to Caruso College for practice sessions every Wednesday. Her lion dance T-shirt went through so many washes that the rearing lion printed on the back faded from black to Apache gray, and it became difficult to read the words. Christminster University Lion Dance Troupe on the back, even if you could read traditional Chinese. She learned to relax her knees in a desired horse riding stance, so she would feel hardly any pain at all for at least five minutes. During tedious lectures, she tapped out the rhythms of the symbols on her desk. When Coco told her the truth, she found it easier to believe. She demanded no proof. Xiaxi had already known that there was something magical about lion dance. Mister Yu told them about the ghost on the way upstairs, speaking low-voiced in Cantonese. Nick bought it with the business's money, without our knowledge. He said, "We hired him because we thought he would understand the British customers better. I suppose it's not his fault. He was very happy about it." He said it was a bargain to get an antique like that in such good condition. He took it well when we told him no more antiques, but he refuses to get rid of this one. He says it adds to the character of the hotel, matches the surroundings. Mister Yu looked outraged at the thought. I can tell you that's not true. He added, "The rest of the surroundings isn't haunted. We got priests to bless the house before we moved in. No ghosts left anywhere. Knock wood." Tiati automatically wrapped the banister along with Mister Yu, but Coco was British and did not hold with superstitions. She was only interested in real ghosts. How old is the building? She said. It was built in the nineteen seventies, said Mister Yu. You could tell from the disapproval in his voice that he thought this plenty old already. The people who built it were interested in history. This is the recreation of some earl's house in Shropshire. Wow," said Coco. "They must have had a lot of money." "Eh," said Mister Yu. "Guaylo have no sense. They treat the past like it's just an old movie, like it's not serious." The room he took them to looked like an ordinary hotel room, brightly lit and carpeted in beige, with two white beds and Van Gogh prints on the wall. Coco peered in. "Where is it?" "Oh, it isn't here," said Mister Yu. This is where you can wait before your performance. We try not to go into the other room. That's down the corridor, the third door on your right, number eighty-eight. Wow, good number," said Tiati without thinking. Mister Yu's face turned suddenly stormy. "I know," he said. The others laughed when Tiati told them about the room number, except for Alec. Performances always make Alec stressed. If he had had his way, they would only have hunted ghosts, which at least didn't expose you in all your inadequacy to an audience. But as Coco and Simon and Tiong Han pointed out, what sort of a lion dance troupe didn't give performances? It would piss me off too, Alex said. 
Why did they put it in that room? Why not put it in forty-four? Nick did it apparently," said Coco in English. Her accent went funny when she spoke to British people, but when she was with the troupe, the familiar Cantonese tones re-entered her voice. Mister Yu said, "When Nick found out about eights being lucky, he thought he could pretty it up and make it into a kind of special suite, charge couples more for it. It's larger than the other rooms as well. Now only the ghost gets to enjoy the space," said Tiong Han. Yeah, Mister Yu said it comes out and stands around sometimes," said Coco. "They can't rent the room out. Even Nick feels it. He'll come out all covered in sweat, complaining that the heater in the room is broken." "Ha!" said Simon. "Funny, ghosts usually make a place colder." "What is it?" said Alec. "The haunted thing, I mean." "Cabinet," said Coco. There was a groan from the troop. I hate cabinets," said Tiong Han. "Worse than haunted beds." "Yeah, those doors," said Simon. He winced at some unpleasant memory. "Cabinet doors almost took off the lion's head once, and Alex's hand," he added as an afterthought. "Worse than chairs," said Tiong Han. "No, chairs can be even worse," said Coco. "This was before your time, but once a sofa bed almost killed our lion." We had to bring in the Buddha. Oh, sofas are different from chairs, Tiong Han. Sofas are super bad. Why are ghosts so nasty, Wan? Said Jiaqi, breaking into the stream of spectral reminiscence. Coco shrugged. They can be horrible. It's actually very dangerous sometimes. Once you start a routine, they can't be sure it'll be okay until the lion's eaten the ghost. If you were dead, you wouldn't feel like being nice to people, what? Tiong Han pointed out. But weren't any of them good people before they died? Said Tiati. Coco and Tiong Han exchanged a glance. We usually don't wait to find out, said Coco. So we attack first and ask questions later, said Tiati. She was shocked. Like that, of course the ghosts are not good mood. If we wait for them to show if they are nice or not first, we be dead, lah, said Tiong Han. Ninety-nine percent of the ghosts I've met are all not nice, very violent. They're not meant to be here, Tiazi said. Coco, it's really a kindness to let the lions eat them. Simon had a less spiritual view of things. Lions got to eat something, he said. Cabbage, not enough. Come on, said Alec abruptly. They could all tell he'd been working himself up over the performance to come. It was going to be a whopper of a performance, outdoors in the middle of winter, on unfamiliar ground, and it was to involve what, for the troop, passed as acrobatics. Alex stood up. Let's scout team the ghost first and get it over with. So you can have plenty of time to worry about the performance," said Coco. She patted his shoulder. "It'll be fine." We should have practiced more," muttered Alec. As they filed out the room, he'll be fine. They were all so casual about the ghost that Xiaoti didn't even feel nervous. She never seen a ghost before, much less tried to lion dance one out of existence. But there didn't appear to be anything to be nervous about when she first saw room eighty-eight. It was at least twice the size of the room they were had been put in, and furnished in an Oriental style. 
Rich red hangings draped over the windows. The bedspread was silk and had golden pop-eyed dragons embroidered all over it. Above the bed, there was a large painting of a geisha with a parasol standing at the entrance of a Japanese house. Big red and gold vases stood in the corners of the room, containing plastic branches with pink cloth cherry blossoms. The cumulative effect was awful. The only genuinely beautiful thing in the room was the cabinet. It was a rich dark brown, the sheen of the lacquered wood undulled by age. On its doors were gilded panels with the usual pictures of houses, mountains, clouds, trees. The shape of the trees were like the shape of an old woman's body when she stands up and stretches her back, like the shape of slender ghosts with arms reaching out to embrace the living. The humans in the panels were incidental, quaint. Peasants carrying buckets on both ends of poles slug over their shoulder. Aristocrats standing in affected poses outside squat houses with flick-eared roofs, processions of scholars, on bridges arching over the dark river. Looking at the cabinet gave Tiazi a creeping feeling up and down her back, but she couldn't tell whether there was anything paranormal about it. Coco gave the woodwork a quick professional look over. Then she got down to business. She tapped the rim of the drum twice, sharply, with the drumstick. Tiazi raised her cymbals. Remember, Tiong Han had told her, before she and Coco went in. He already had the shaggy sequenced trousers on, halfway through his transformation into the lion's hindquarters. No tiang tiang until the lion comes in. Follow the signal. Now the drum gave voice to a deep rumbling. It was the sound of the stomach of a lion just waking from sleep to hunger. The lion came staggering into the room, blinking. Xiaqi could still see Tiong Han and Simon's legs under the lion's head. The lion always started off as human. In the beginning, you could tell it was paint and wood and paper and cloth. At the start, it was only a show. The head darted around, the mouth clacking as the lion sniffed the air. Xiaqi found herself falling headfirst into the dance. Simon was their best dancer, and the movements of the head were lovely each clearly defined, but following each other with perfect timing, describing a fluid narrative in the air. The lion jumped, nosed the bed, and peered under the table, always casting glances at the cabinet over its shoulder. Finally, it minced over to the cabinet. When it was nearly on it, it paused and looked straight at Coco, blinking twice. This was the signal. Coco and Xiaqi charged thunderously into Qi Shi, the rising lion. The lion rose and shook its horned head. Sing Li, the lion bowed. The troupe had agreed on the routine before the performance, but as a symbolist, Xiaqi did not need to remember any of it. She followed the beat of the drum, and every step came as a fresh wonder to her. As the lion danced, an enchantment began to fall on the room. It was as though the dance had made the years turn over on themselves all at once, so that the dust of centuries began to settle on the furniture in a matter of minutes. Outlines grew hazy, and the room grew dark, matching the blue-black evening sky outside. Only the cabinet glowed golden, the figures on its doors standing out in sharp relief, so vivid 
that they seemed about to move, and the lion. The lion blazed through the room. Xia Xi knew its legs were Simon and Tiong Han's legs, working in unison, but she knew the tossing head and the blinking eyes were operated by human hands, and yet she did not know it. The lion had changed; it was not human any more. The spirit that slumbered in the lion's head had awakened. It was a single, strange, live creature, and the beat of the drum was the beat of its heart. The pictures on the cabinet's face came alive. A peasant put his buckets down and rolled his shoulders. The aristocrats giggled and flirted, passing each other jars of rice wine. The scholars found good spots on the river bank and settled down to read or make up poetry. The cabinet began to shake; its doors rattled. Xia Qi closed her eyes in terror. With her eyes closed, she was in a thudding, crashing world, all symbols and drum. She could feel the line move around the room. Its heavy footsteps dancing closer and closer to the cabinet, a gust of wind on her face meant that the lion had just swept past her. It would be opening its mouth. It would be rising over the cabinet, ready to devour, ready to swallow the ghost back into the darkness whence it came. There was a shriek and a thud. Simon said, "Eh, Sigina Lai." Xia Qi's eyes snapped open just in time for her to see the cabinet jump a whole two inches off the ground. It resettled on the ground with a thump that she felt in her feet. The lion was gaping. Simon goggling through the open mouth. The lion's back deflated as Tiong Han crawled out from under the train to stare at what had come out of the closet. It was indeed a child, a curly-haired black boy, about ten years old. He blinked sleepily. And did not seem to know that they were there at first. Then he opened his eyes wide. Where did you come from? He said. George had not heard of Malaysia. They drew him a map by committee. It is Laos between Myanmar and Vietnam. It is right," said Tiong Han. "I don't think Hong Kong is so high up," said Coco, leaning over his shoulder. "And your proportions are all wrong." Singapore is not bigger than Hong Kong. In ego, it is," said Tiong Han, who was from Johor. "See," said Simon to George, "it's on the end of Asia. Half is a peninsula; the other half is stuck to Indonesia." The little boy bent his head over the map. It was touching to see how seriously he studied the scrawled picture. Tiong Han was studying architecture, but that was apparently no guarantee of his draftsmanship. The Golden Kersenese," said George softly. "No, no, Malaysia," said Tiong Han. "Where are you from, George?" said Xia Qi. "I would say nineteenth century, going from the clothes," said Coco. "Or maybe late seventeen hundreds. I'm not very good at telling this kind of thing." "I was brought to this country when I was a little boy," said George. "My father was a king in Africa." But he lost his kingdom to the British soldiers. He gave me to one of the soldiers so that I would be safe, and so I could be educated and learn to be a Christian. A captain of the navy brought me to England with him when he returned home. He recited this as if it were a story he had heard many times. Oh," said Simon, "so you are adopted by a British?" George's forehead wrinkled. 
Your new mother and father are English now, said Coco. I am sorry. I'm afraid I don't quite understand, said George. Who do you live with, George? said Xiaqi. The child brightened, looking relieved to be asked a question he could answer. When I was alive, I lived with my master, Captain Joseph Pennywhite, and my mistress, his wife, he said. Now I am dead, I live there, he pointed. They stared at the cabinet. George was gazing at the map. Are you all from this Malaysia? he asked. Almost, said Simon. Me, Tiong Han, and Xia Tia. Alex is from Hong Kong, and Coco is from here. My parents are from Hong Kong, said Coco. But all my friends are Malaysian. Alec and I are like honorary Malaysians. And you are all together, said George. Yeah, said Simon. The lion dance troupe has always been like that. We tried to diversify, but the Ang Mo, I mean, the Westerners don't really feel so comfortable. Because usually when a Westerner comes to a training session, he ends up being the only one. It's a bit lonely for them. George was fiddling with the edge of the paper they'd drawn the map on. He didn't say anything, but Tiati felt she could see right through his head into his thoughts. She touched his shoulder. Do you like fireworks? she said. Alec let George hold a stick, to which they tied a head of cabbage. They were the only ones staying in the hotel room. The others trooped down the stairs. Coco held the lion's head, and Simon and Tiong Han carried the drum. Their room overlooked a courtyard where the performance was to take place. The party-goers were already spilling out to the dining room, bringing the smell of alcohol and food with them into the cold night air. Past the courtyard were fields of grass as far as the eye could see, no buildings to interrupt the flat, rolling vastness. In the daytime, it would have been pretty. At night, there was something frightening about those looming fields. The sky in the countryside seemed larger than it was in town. Tiati craned her head, shivering as the air hit her bare neck. Above her, a handful of stars glowed white around the yellow moon. I thought there were more stars in the country, said Tiati. England's too cloudy, said Coco. She wrapped the side of the drum. The lion's head snapped up. It blinked. The dance was on. The audience seemed eager to be pleased. Tiazi had never felt more grateful for the existence of alcohol, but she could still sense Coco tensing as they reached the denouement. A stick emerged from one of the windows, and the cabbage dropped down. It bounced a few times as George waggled the stick to make sure everyone in the audience had noticed it. The lion dropped into a crouch, shaking its behind in anticipation. Why did lions like eating cabbage? Perhaps, being magical creatures, they could taste metaphor, and eating cabbage was like having the golden flavor of prosperity lying on their tongue. Lions were also fond of wine, but this was an inclination that did not require explanation. Tiazi whimped out and closed her eyes at the pivotal moment. When she opened them, the lion was standing upright, the cabbage right next to its gaping maw. Inside the lion, Simon had managed to climb onto Tiong Han's shoulders. The audience broke out into impressed applause. Tiazi clanged as hard as she could, her hands aching from clutching the symbols too hard. The lion wobbled. 
Please don't let Tiong Han lose his grip. Don't let Simon slip. The lion's head lunged forward. The cabbage vanished, and the tower of lion collapsed, but in a way that looked almost purposeful. The next moment, the lion was itself again. Simon and Tiong Han back in control. The lion staggered. The cabbage was not suiting its stomach. Why did lions have such delicate stomachs? Jiaqi understood the artistic usefulness of a storytelling device that enabled things to be thrown out of the lion's mouth to an appreciative crowd. But it still seemed funny to her that so many lion dance routines revolved around vomit. Traditionally, one showered the audience with shredded greens, indicating that it was now covered with prosperity. But there was a risk with this audience. That it might just think it had been covered with cabbage, the troupe had therefore come up with an alternative. Tiati had suggested it, and she swelled with pride as the gold chocolate coins filled the air, accompanied by the laughter and cheering of the crowd. Ah, close one," said Tiong Han afterwards. Simon almost fell, man. I thought, ah, Basla, she'll die already. I don't think the audience noticed," said Tiati. Alec dismissed the audience with a wave of his hand. The audience doesn't know how to see what's right or wrong. We are the ones who know whether it is good or not," he said. "What do you think, George?" George's eyes were shining. "It was the most wonderful thing I have ever seen," he said. "George is your number one fan," said Coco to Simon. "You are also very good," Simon told him solemnly. Yeah, good cabbage holding," said Tiong Han. George glowed. It wasn't bad, lah," Alex conceded. Apart from the slip, not bad. Eh, did you keep any of those chocolate coins? They ate the chocolate coins while watching the fireworks. George was enthralled. He barely glanced at the chocolate when he was offered it. Thank you, but I don't do that anymore," he said. Tiati withdrew into a hoodie. Crimping her sleeves closed with a finger so that the air would not come in. Are you cold? Whispered George. Tiati nodded. Here, take my hand. Oh, said Tiati, you're so warm. George was watching the sky. Red sparks bloomed against the clouds, were reflected in his enchanted eyes. It's always been warm, he said, since I died. They were packing away the equipment when Tiati said, "What are we going to do about George?" The troops stopped and looked at one another. "We can't take him away from here," said Coco. "Ghosts have to stay with the object they're haunting." Then said Tiati, her chest felt tight. "We just leave him here, is it? Never mind that this small kid is lonely. It's none of our business, also." No response, though everyone looked uncomfortable. Tiasi plowed on. Like that, we might as well finish the job. Go back to the room and make sure the lion eats him this time. Otherwise, we've just left it dangling. Oh, we can't do that! Coco exclaimed almost involuntarily. You said that they are all not meant to be here," said Tiasi. She hardly recognized her own voice. At least, if the lion eats him, then he's free. Maybe he can go to heaven. Or be reborn, or, Tiati, spirits don't go free after they get eaten," said Alec. "Oh," said Tiati, taken aback. 
What happens to them? What do you think happens after a lion eats you? Said Tiong Han. Digested, said Simon briefly. Yes, said Coco. She seemed embarrassed. Sorry, Tiati. I should have explained that to you in the beginning. We're not priests. We're just an extermination service. Doesn't seem so right to eat George, said Simon. He's smaller than my little brother, also. But if we all leave him stuck here, what are we gonna tell Mister Yu? Said Tiati. From Tiong Han's face, it was clear that he had been hoping to avoid this question. I thought if we just left, maybe he won't notice. He ventured. Coco rounded on him. Tiong Han, he paid us an extra one hundred pounds for the ghost busting. You weren't going to tell him we didn't do it. Okay, okay, fine," said Tiong Han. He looked wistful. Their lion head was becoming somewhat tattered in his old age, and he'd been eyeing new ones on the internet. But you tell him, can or not? I feel shy. They give us free dinner some more. I will tell him," said Xiati. Mister Yu was not pleased. Lion dance is supposed to get rid of evil spirit. Why should I hire you if you're not going to bring good luck? He's nine or ten only," said Simon. "He can't be an evil spirit at that age, right? Naughty at the very most." Mister Yu, the ghost is a child," said Xiati. "How is he going to bring bad luck?" Yeah, he can't even drive," said Tiong Han helpfully. "Young or old, ghosts are bad for business," said Mister Yi. "You can't have this kind of supernatural thing in the hospitality industry. People go to hotels to relax, not to pretend they are in a horror movie. I'll have to get a priest in, or burn the cabinet." A cry of protest rose from the troop. "You can't do that," said Coco. "Mister Yi," said Jiaxi. Give us the cabinet; we'll get rid of it for you. We will," said Tiong Han. Mister Yu hesitated. "What will I tell Nick?" "Tell him we stole it," said Xiati recklessly. "Oh no! Don't say that," said Tiong Han. "Say you lost it." "We can't take the cabinet," whispered Alec. "Where are we going to keep it?" Xiati left the others to argue it out among themselves. She had more important things to worry about. The air in the hotel room was cold. The lights took a while to brighten after she flipped the switch, and in their dim glow, the cabinet looked like nothing more than a dead piece of wood. Maybe George wasn't there anymore. But when Xiaqi knelt down and asked her question, she felt the room grow warm. A breath of humid air brushed her cheek. George was sitting on the floor next to her. Could I help with that dance again? If I came with you. He said, "Tiong Han said I helped the cabbage very well. Of course, you can do other things also if you like," said Xiaqi. "We'll teach you how to play the cymbals, and George was probably too small to be the lion. And you can learn how to be the Buddha. You'll be the youngest member of the troop ever." "Would I be a member of the troop?" said George, wide-eyed. "You won't be on the mailing list," said Xiaqi. "But yeah." Only if you want, lah. Oh yes," said George. There wasn't any space left in the back of the van, so they put the cabinet on the back seat. Xiaqi sat next to it, promising to make sure it didn't fall over. The rest of the troop sat in front and talked all the way back, 
but in the back it was quiet and stiflingly warm. Xia Xi felt herself blinking, her eyelids trying to gum her eyes shut. The drive seemed longer than the drive to the hotel had been. They went deeper and deeper into the darkness, hedges rising up and outside the windows, and falling away, the country a slumbering mystery behind them. Xia Xi stretched out an arm across the front of the cabinet. It would wake her up if it so much as wobbled. She could let herself drift. As sleep veiled her eyes, she felt a small, warm hand grasp hers. She slept and dreamt of sunshine. She dreamt of home. And welcome back. Lots of fun, huh? I love the idea of this band of ghost hunters driving through the country and befriending the poor ghosts stuck there. Sweet. You can sign up for our own troop of ghost hunters at forum.escapeartist.net. In fact, let's head there right now to talk about feedback for George R. Galushak's Middle-Aged Weirdo in a Cadillac, read by Norm Sherman. The story of a demon and a teenager in search of the highway to hell. Feedback for this one was generally positive, with the main complaint being that it was too brief, kind of funny, after the Peter S. Beagle story we ran the week before. Infinite Monkey said, It was an amusing little demon story, which I'm glad did not end badly for the hitchhiker, and I'm glad it was read by escape artist's own middle-aged weirdo, Norm Sherman. Atan appreciated that the story didn't attempt to end on a moral message, the girl very clearly is making bad decisions, but it turns out that in the end she profits from them. Assuming that she's better off without the Ouroboros. And that's how it is sometimes. A small story of a very human interaction between two characters, one of which just happens to be non-human. Well, thank you very much for those comments, and you can let us know what you thought of this week's story at forum.escapeartist.net. Drop by and say hi. We'd love to hear from you. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a donation to podcastle.org. Your donations are what make it possible for us to bring you the best in fantasy fiction week after week. We can't do it without you, and we appreciate every single dollar. Thanks. We'd like to take a moment to thank the latest member of our ghost hunting chorus, Birgit Kufner, who hails from Germany. Birgit did a graduate program in Providence, and in an attempt to keep her English skills up to par, started listening to English audiobooks. I guess it's done all right by her because she's been listening to PodCastle from the start. Thanks so much for your support, Bridget. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. The chorus line here at PodCastle is made up of Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, Dave Thompson. On behalf of all of us, thanks so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with some high-thieving fantasy to thrill you all with, courtesy of Tina Connolly. See you in a week. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. 
Bill Watterson said, It's not denial. I'm just selective about the reality I accept.